This is not like a small little tweak to your business. It is a fundamental transformation of your business model and it needs to be board and CEO sponsored and you need to think holistically because it impacts every single process. It impacts how you develop products, how you market them, how you sell them, how you service them. So once you're on this journey, you're all in and you have to stay patient and you have to stay persistent on this journey. You can't just turn around in six months and say these things are not happening fast enough. Because to turn around a ship, it takes time. This episode of Decoding Digital is going to be a little bit different. Instead of interviewing one guest, I sit down with two of the foremost experts in digital business models, David Sovey and Vic Viniak. In their roles as managing directors at Accenture, both David and Vic have played an integral part in helping companies around the world develop digital transformation strategies and put them into action. Based in Chicago, Vic leads Accenture's electronics and high-tech industry practice within North America, where he focuses on using analytics and AI to drive business transformation. He has extensive experience in industry X.O, supply chain organization design, and other complex areas. David is based in Japan, and he is Accenture's global high-tech industry lead. He is responsible for driving the high-tech industry growth, thought leadership, client portfolio, and market positioning. David is an expert in rethinking traditional business models, and in 2019, he released a book on the topic called Reinventing the Product, How to Transform Your Business and Create Value in the Digital Age. In this episode, David and Vic talk about why digital business models are so critical for success and what companies can do to start rethinking their own products and services for the future of commerce. This is Daniel Sachs, co-CEO of AppDirect, and it's time to decode everything as a service. Welcome to Decoding Digital podcast for innovators looking to thrive in the digital economy. I'm your host, Daniel Sachs, and I'll sit down with other founders, CEOs, and changemakers to decode the trends that are transforming the way we work. Let's decode. David, Vic, welcome to Decoding Digital. Super excited today to really profile both of your work on as-a-service business models. And as we've discussed on Decoding Digital, the importance of digital transformation is really critical for our customer success. And it's not just about the technology, but it's also about the business models that allow business customers to easily consume the services that we're providing. And David, I know you actually wrote a book focused on as-a-service models called Reinventing the Product. And I was really excited about the book and the content but really wanted to double-click on which companies have exceeded at reinventing their products and how have they done that through the innovation of business models. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first, thank you for having Vic and I on your podcast. I'm super delighted to be here. And I'll give you a kind of a preamble then answer your question, Dan. I think I always talk a little bit about, well, why now? Why now are companies talking about reinventing their business model to as a service and what's different now? So first, I think it starts with the fact you have to acknowledge that to have an as a service model, at least a compelling one, you need a product that's smart, 
with enough processing power connected at a high enough bandwidth and ideally kind of AI enabled. And the reality is even five years ago, most of that was not possible. Without 4G and now soon 5G networking, you didn't have the bandwidth power. And processors used to need to have a $500 or $1,000 device to have enough processing power to have a really smart product. And related to processing power is the sensors, because to really be smart, you need sensors on a product. But the reality today is sensors cost pennies. You can get processing power for pretty inexpensive along with the connectivity. So as the world moves to kind of smart connected products, then the logical question a lot of companies ask is, well, do I sell this as a product or do I actually, when it's connected and it's always being updated and evergreen, why not actually shift the business model to an as a service business model? So I think that's a little bit of context. And then you ask, well, who's done this? I often say to product companies, you might think software companies are a little different than you, but remember, Software used to be sold as a CD-ROM and sent in a box, right? And the software industry has almost completely pivoted to software as a service in the last five years. And obviously, there was the born in the SaaS model companies like Salesforce.com, but people forget that Adobe was probably one of the first leaders to shift from a traditional software business model to a SaaS business model. So a lot of the hardware companies are still on that journey together. A few examples of companies are kind of interesting, right? So Apple still makes most of its revenue from selling hardware. But if you look now, they have a $50 billion plus services business, right? So they've taken that platform and now you have Apple Music, Apple Cloud, Apple TV. And so you see a lot of kind of hardware companies trying to emulate that. And we probably get in a a few more examples as we go through, but that's kind of my simple overview answer. What do you think that the product companies can learn from the software playbook on some of the examples that you provided of traditional software companies, like maybe the Adobe's of the world or the Microsoft's of the world successfully transforming? And how do you bring that to light in the products that are trying to transition to as-a-service business models? Basically, every hardware company I know is asking this question today of, can I and should I transition to some sort of as-a-service model? And some people call it devices-as-a-service, hardware-as-a-service, infrastructure-as-a-service. There's different flavors of that business model shift. I think every CEO I know is asking that question. Again, why? One is because it's technically possible, as I said before, but two, Wall Street really rewards that shift that this recurring revenue business model results in much higher valuations and much more durability of revenue. So the starting point I often say is this is not like a small little tweak to your business. It is a fundamental transformation of your business model, and it needs to be board and CEO sponsored. And you need to think holistically because it impacts every single process. It impacts how you develop products, how you market them, how you sell them, how you service them. And in particular, the software industry I think did a good job of creating this whole idea of customer success to say it's not a one-time sale. I now need people who actually think about driving adoption and usage of the as-a-service business model. I mean, that function, just as a simple example, that function doesn't exist in a hardware company. There's no such function that says once you sell a product, I actually think about driving usage and adoption. (laughs) and the customer success with that product over time. So at the simple level, I say it needs to be kind of a board and CEO-sponsored transformation. It needs to be holistic end-to-end. And I know maybe Vic could comment on that. I know you're working with one of your clients there pretty closely on that shift in business model. Yeah, I think to add to what Dave mentioned, there are a couple of other things that need to be learned. 
as you make that pivot from a product to a platform as a service or or a service offerings, basically, you need to be also thinking about the agile principle that the software industry has grown into, especially for your architecture. You need to make sure you're doing agile development because typically these product companies are very much of engineering focus where you need to kind of get end-to-end done in a very waterfall fashion. So bring that agile principles in. The second thing is, Dave was talking about the transformation. You think about it's full cultural transformation because today I'm selling a widget that is hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars and I pay my Salesforce commission based on that. Now I'm asking people to have a subscription, which is maybe only a few hundred a month or a few thousand dollars a month. You're changing the mindset and showing people the value that that's going to bring, the pivot that is going to happen. That's another principle that needs to be brought in. And I think the third thing is that this is kind of a dual dynamic. So if you look at product forward, what features of your product are going to enable the success for the customer? What value they're going to drive and market backward? What is the what the market is really looking for? Staying close to your customers and making sure you are constantly innovating and creating features in your product that the customer is really looking for and having a closer fit of those two. So I feel those are some of the other things that from a software industry that product companies should be uh, adopting. So I know, Vic, you've worked with many companies that have gone beyond just thinking about how to shift software to as a service or recurring and even just beyond products. How do businesses think about, let's say, bundling products, services, and other value points to drive this recurring business model strategy? Absolutely. So I think there are two mindsets that you need to be aware of as the companies are making that pivot. First and foremost, you already have a customer base where you're selling product very successfully. And from that customer base, there are some early adopters who really want to be in the front end and who want to be with the cutting edge of the new innovations that you are bringing. So take those customers on that journey with you, bring them to co-innovate with you, help them tell you what they're really looking for and how you can make their life better. So the whole concept of customer experience becomes even more amplified. And without that customer experience, it's all about customer experience. Without driving that better customer experience, you cannot really create a product that is going to be a hit in the market. And I think the second thing to look at is Look at your product and look at where the industry is headed. Can I move into adjacencies? Can I move into adjacent industries? If you don't move it, someone else will do that because your product will just become as a source of what happened to some of the telcos. It's like they've had what they call the fiber, but it's a dump pipe, right? Because it's just used for the data. And there were companies who were coming and building OTT platforms on top of that or plugging applications in that can drive the benefits. So you want to actually have incentivize people to innovate and come into your architecture and innovate with you and layer on top of your platform while making sure that you're also on the cutting edge. So you're not like leaving it all for others to come in and capture that market share. So you want to pick some spots and then you want to open up other spots for the ecosystem to come in and innovate with you. In your work at Accenture, you obviously consult to some of the largest organizations in the world about their transformation. But as we saw with the as-a-service software models, Oftentimes, it was actually the upstarts that figured out how to thrive and become large companies. When you're looking at the next cohort of companies that are trying to transition, how do you advise them on effectively making this transformation, recognizing all the restrictions in their old way of doing things, but also recognizing that they have a great brand? Where do they start from an organizational perspective? 
So I think I'll start and Dave has a lot of experience in this as well. And I'd love Dave to build on this thing. I think first of all, a lot of the clients at this point are like transformation fatigued out at this point. Because everything is a transformation. Imagine like digital coming at a million miles an hour at them. Then the whole need to look for new revenue models. So I think companies which are doing an agile approach in a way that, okay, I'm going to pick a couple of products. I'm going to test them in the market. And I'm going to scale the success of that. And I'm going to go after it in a bigger way. That's number one. Second is from a cultural perspective, you have to act like a startup while making sure that you are still a large organization. And let me explain what I mean by that. You need to have innovation and you need to have people incentivized to fail fast. But you also need to encourage people to use the infrastructure of the large organization that has been set up. Because in a startup, you don't have all that infrastructure. You have a strong customer base today. Don't try to go find new customer base. Leverage the existing customer base. You have the back office that is already there set up. Don't try to recreate new back office. Leverage what you have. So similarly, you have the relationships that are there. So leverage that. So I feel that that's the approach that has to be followed. Don't try to do with a big bang. Rather do an incremental so you can drive that success. Yeah, I think this is a really hard question, actually. And it varies a little bit by company. But the core question is to me is, is your existing core business going to be completely disrupted by this shift to as a service in a major way? Or is it going to be kind of slow and gradual? Or is there going to be a segment of the customer population that is interested in this so that you can go a little more slowly, if you will? So it's certainly much easier if you can say, okay, I got this core business is going to continue running. It's going to generate cash while well, I could build kind of a side business or a new co-model to offer a kind of new types of as-a-service business models to my installed-based customer. So I see a lot of that, right? Okay, my core business is my core business, but I'm going to try to add on. I'm going to create a new revenue stream by creating kind of some new digital services or digital service models that complement that. And if you could do that, that's by far the best. The reality is I think there's some businesses that are just going to completely shift. And if you don't actually say, okay, this is how my model is shifting and I'm all in, that's the core question. Do you need to actually, in certain product segments, say I'm all in <laughs> and this is the future of my business? And so at least in the software industry, eventually the answer was you're all in, right? You're all in on SaaS and the old kind of shrink wrap software on a CD-ROM in a box is in many cases gone, right? <laughs> or on the way to being gone. So you've got to really ask yourself that question. Is this something that can kind of complement and my core business is fine for another five or 10 years? Or is this really something that's going to cause me to have to actually completely flip the switch? What are some examples in the product economy that you think are really well suited to go all in? I'm going to give you a couple of examples. I think it hasn't quite flipped yet, but the automotive industry, I think, is getting close to that world, right? So you actually say, well, Tesla has kind of proven that what is a car? A car is basically a computing platform and software <laughs> with uh, four wheels on it in the sense that a Tesla car and others like it are very much an evergreen platform that's continually upgraded and updated. And so the reality is the Tesla car that you have today is actually a better car than three years ago. In the history of the world, that's never been true. <laughs> if you bought a product three years later, is it a better product? And it's only when you can have this kind of what I like to call an evergreen, meaning it's continually upgradable platform that you can actually improve features and functionality over time. 
So you're starting to see this world already where people like Tesla are saying, well, I'm taking the first baby steps. I'm going to charge you for upgrades. So you want to pay for autonomous driving. That's more of an upgrade package. But they and others are very much talking about, well, why don't I move all the way to kind of an as-a-service model for access to kind of vehicles at any given time? That's one interesting area that everyone understands, right? I think the PC industry might be on the verge of making this shift. A lot of the laptop companies are basically saying, well, you're going to upgrade this product every three years anyway, so <laughs> why not actually try to find some ways to make this an evergreen as a service business model? So I do believe there's going to be a number of segments that will five or 10 years from now flip a switch. And then the question is, is it really going to be happening in a two-year window or is it going to take kind of five or 10 years in order for the switch to fully flip? Let me build on what Dave said, just give another example, which is around, you know, the concept of software-defined hardware upgrades. I have a Tesla, and each month I get a new feature, which almost makes it like I'm getting a new car. Imagine someone who wants to get a new experience in the car, you have to go in and I got to change the seats and I got to get this. Everything is an upgrade. Here, a lot of these upgrades are being constantly pushed out to the customers. So now that almost like creates the newness of the product and keeps that hook in on the customer. And the day is not far for car. And I know some of the car companies are already trying that car as a service. They're like each six months, each year, you can go and drive in a new car. Now, obviously it's expensive, but if that's the lifestyle you want, the option is available. Fantastic examples and ones that everyone can relate to. What I've seen from interacting with a lot of our clients is that in order to drive these all-in transformations, it takes more than just the technology. It takes a cultural shift. What are the characteristics that you've seen in leaders who have been successful at driving all-in change? I think first it needs to start with the recognition of what you just said. Is This requires not only a business model transformation, but a cultural transformation. And the reality is traditional, particularly product hardware companies have kind of culture and processes that were built 20 or 30 years ago for kind of a different world. They were built for very much a, I launch a new product once a year, it's a transactional sale, I sell it to a distributor or to a retailer, and then maybe I have a warranty card that tells me who my customer is, but I don't really have any ongoing relationship in a meaningful way with that customer. So to actually adopt and say, I now need to actually have the mentality of a services company <laughs> to say that the product is just a way to create a footprint to facilitate an ongoing services relationship is a dramatic cultural shift and trying to get all the organizations to actually understand and be metric on things like adoption and not just customer satisfaction, but kind of adoption and usage of the features of the platform. And that's an example, again, I think you can get some inspiration from the software industry to say, well, hey, I'm actually measuring my people and creating some of the compensation and the visible metrics tied to kind of usage and adoption and advocacy for the platform. And, and that is just a massive shift. It's just not something that traditional product companies' culture is just not geared that way. They're geared to design a product and launch it and then move on to the next one. So definitely this all-in decision is huge. It requires a cultural shift, a transformation, a business model trend. And you have to go all in, right? You're going partial in on this strategy could create friction, confusion. What's the balance of saying, okay, we have to do this, we have to go all in, and we have to go fast versus letting them take their time and overthink it, but then three years go by, five years go by, and a startup's eating their lunch? 
I think we as consultants have to recognize that the pace at which we move is actually much faster than the pace at which our clients want to move. So you have to kind of lay it out for them and then let them kind of make the decision. Because what happens is when they make the decision with all the data that you've given and you can kind of guide them through that decision, it's a better decision versus like a decision that gets forced on them by even their own leadership that the leadership buys in, the CEO, let's say, buys in and the organization doesn't buy in. So to some aspect, you have to have the right deliberation to get that right consensus. Within the leadership, goes back into the all-in. So once you're on this journey, you're all-in and you have to stay patient and you have to stay persistent on this journey. You can't just turn around in six months and say, these things are not happening fast enough because to turn around a ship, it takes time versus like turn around a car. So I feel this trade-off between speed and also like management of expectations. One of the things that I've found is that at a bigger organization, people who are working on an innovation project do need quick wins to be able to showcase progress, but at the same time need the support from the larger organization in order to adopt it in a reasonable time frame. So how do you balance this need for speed with the reality of managing expectations to drive overall transformation? Well, first, I'd say that it's not easy. And it is also linked to this comment before. Is this whole market going to flip a switch or is this going to tackle a segment of the market? Because if the whole market flips a switch, the actual P&L and cash flow of a company has a dramatic impact. So the CFO and the CEO need to think really hard to manage Wall Street's expectations and the employee-based expectations that the transition period is going to be very painful <laughs> because you actually are going to have revenue go down potentially for a period because instead of just selling a product for $1,000, as Vic said, you're going to sell an as-a-service model and next year's revenue is going to be $100. <laughs> and that transition period is pretty painful. So if you think you need to do an all-in switch, you need to actually have the right clarity of messaging to all stakeholders, to Wall Street and to your employees, and make sure that you understand that transition period is going to be a challenge. Now, even if it's the second model, which says I could start with the segment of the customer and here a great example is light bulbs, right? So I always kind of joke, if you could think of one of the world's dumbest products historically, it's a light bulb, right? It's a piece of glass with a filament inside. <laughs> There's not much to a light bulb, right? And today, if you actually look at a smart connected light, I talk about it in the book I wrote around Signify as an example, the old Philips lighting where they kind of created the Hue platform. So it's an LED light that's based on a semiconductor technology that you can control it and access it remotely via your smartphone. That actually ends up being a segment of the population and say, okay, there's a segment that's willing to buy this higher end, higher functionality, smart connected lighting. But even then, in order to build that, you need to ring fence a significant investment dollars to say, this may take a while to build this. And how do I create that investment envelope with a commitment to protect that investment envelope for a multi-year period in order to build that business. And so I think there is a two-speed model, right? There's the flip the switch version and there's the, hey, I can actually have a complementary new business that is going to lower my financial performance in the short term. <laughs> so I need to protect it, but it has the potential of actually being significantly more profitable in the long term. It's a very hard balance to make. And I think it's super important to be very explicit in your messaging and in your financial planning. So we've talked about the opportunity to go all in on as-a-service business models. We talked about the need for cultural change and the leadership characteristics and dynamics to ensure that that change can be successful and the way to manage expectations of the teams. 
But let's take a few minutes to double click on the technology. So as a product company is looking to shift to an as a service model, there's obviously a whole new tech stack that can enable the commerce and the metering and monitoring and subscription enablement and the user interface and the ecosystem. So can you speak to some of the challenges that a business might have on sourcing this technology and getting going with adopting new technology to make this shift? Yeah. First, what you just said is absolutely true, that uh, underlying technology platforms that product companies have built were built 10, 20, 30 years ago for a transactional product sale. And as they've launched, particularly if they launch kind of more of a skunk works or pilot effort around as a service, they use some bubble gum and mailing wax to actually enable it. But the reality is they can't do many, many things, right? They actually don't have systems that allow you to actually have a customer self-configure an as-a-service solution. So you go in, you want to buy a product, you want to pick which features and functionalities that you want in an as-a-service solution and configure it and buy it directly. They don't have that. They don't have the ability to actually track the entitlements to say, well, okay, this customer bought something with certain access, right, service entitlements, which is quite common in the software industry. This idea doesn't exist. (laughs) What is the entitlement rights? The notion of doing kind of ongoing monitoring, yeah, sure, maybe they did some kind of break-fix monitoring, but they didn't really track kind of usage and adoption. So how are you actually now tracking much more larger amounts of data from the installed base to actually understand the usage and adoption around it? And so it's a pretty massive change. So that's where we see a lot of clients right now saying, okay, if this is really going to be the future of our company, we now need to actually do kind of an end-to-end business process and technology architecture review. And yes, basically come up with a completely new technology stack. Ideally, that supports both the old business and the new business. The old models aren't going to go away. So you can't easily afford two separate sets of IT systems and technology platforms. So how do you actually think through kind of your core systems that enable traditional product sales, standalone services sales, as-a-service sales, other types of subscription business models? It's possible, but it's a lot of work. (laughs) I'm spending a lot of time with several clients right now plotting out that technology architecture of the future. Yeah, and I think the only thing I would add to what Dave said is that if you have a solution in the market that is readily available, go with that rather than kind of try to create solution on your own or when given a choice, go with the out of the box solution versus trying to customize. Because I think right now there are several solutions available for the back office as well as some of the capabilities you need, leverage them. That's the only advice I give to the clients. When you're thinking of a client and how they picked, Vic, to your point, an effective best of breed out of the box technology, how do you help them assess if their traditional IT stack can map to that new stack and how that works. I'm actually doing this right now with the client. And one of the things we're doing is forcing them to think through 15 or 20 different use cases or user stories of the future. Probably, you know, 10 or 12 of them exist today. They don't necessarily exist in this client, but we're saying, okay, there's many different flavors of as a service, right? So forcing them to think through what is the evolution of all the different business models and permutations of business models that you could imagine offering in the future so that you could kind of future-proof? Because often these are pretty big-ticket investments. You're probably easily sometimes talking $100 million or more for a big Fortune 500 or global 2000-type company in order to enable that 
tech stack in the future. So you want to future-proof the investment. So in my mind, I always say, let's start with what's the evolution of the customer experience you want, number one. Two, what are the different business models? And as I said, there could be 15 or 20 different flavors of those business models. And then you can pressure test the architecture against that. I mean, what architecture choices I make can give me the flexibility to evolve my offerings and my business models over time. And some tech stack choices are great for like a narrow one business model. And if you're quite confident that your future looks exactly like this, then you might make one set of choices. But if you're uncertain about how this market's going to evolve, then you want a more kind of flexible architecture that's allowing you that flexibility for the future. The only thing I would add is that when we're going through the options, it's always good to start with those use cases and do end-to-end process so you can see how the process actually works and where the gaps are, and then you scale versus trying to do everything together. So pick a use case, follow the end-to-end process, and that'll actually help you work out the kinks in the process and then go to the next one and the next one. And just to bring the conversation back full circle, Vic, one of the things you highlighted early in the conversation was around the importance of product companies becoming digitized and connected and then ecosystems being built on top of them. And I recognize that in the traditional economy, product companies fiercely competed based on capability and feature set, and it was very hard to differentiate. Whereas today, it seems like companies, big and small, can collaborate and partner and enable different components of the ecosystem. So would love to get your thoughts on coopetition as a future of business and how that impacts the way businesses seek to compete. My view is when I started my career uh, 20 plus years ago, the thing used to be that in the next few years, it's not going to be companies competing with each other, other supply chains of companies competing with each other. In the last four or five years, I've started to say that it's not the supply chains anymore. It's the ecosystem of the, you know, how do you build the ecosystem around you and how do you leverage that to drive your growth and transform is going to define who's going to win. So I'm a firm believer that you got to build your ecosystem. You got to pick the right partners and then you got to go all in, whether it's to build the product, whether it's to scale or whether it's to drive growth in the market. So I think that is here to stay. And we see the various elements of that. If you look at Microsoft, Microsoft is actually providing software to Dell and HP on the same token. Microsoft also has the product that competes with what Dell and HP have to offer. So I feel that, like you said, the co-opetition is here to stay. You just need to continue to invest in pockets which can drive benefit for you and know that someone is going to come up with competition, whether it's your ecosystem partner or competition, how you continue to gain edge on that. And that's through innovation. Well, thanks, Vic. David, this was phenomenal. Really great insights into as-a-service business models and how product companies can transform. I really enjoyed the conversation and look forward to connecting again soon. Thank you. Same here. Thank you. Thanks, Jay. On the next episode of Decoding Digital. In a digital world, things are infinite. The possibilities are infinite. The opportunities are infinite. The ability for inclusion is infinite. The ability to actually make money is infinite. Founder, Chairman, and Principal Analyst of Constellation Research, Ray Wong. Thanks for listening to Decoding Digital. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. To learn more, visit decodingdigital.com. Until next time.